right, grab your English Bibles and open them to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 18. Friends, we have two weeks left in our series through the book of Hebrews as we've been looking at the exaltation of Christ. So today is where all of these major themes of Jesus being greater than the angels being the son of God with a greater message, greater than Moses, greater than the priests, greater than the temple, greater than the sacrifices, a greater mediator, all come crashing together. And if this is your first Sunday and you feel a bit lost, it's understandable. What's happening, if we want to remind ourselves, is that the author of Hebrews is addressing a community of people that are experiencing the unsettledness of the world the persecution for their faith. And they're probably stuck in some fear, anxiety, worry. And so the author, like a good pastor, is trying to care for a community of people, not to be shaken by the events that are happening, but to put their eyes on something greater, greater than their circumstances, greater than their situation, someone who is greater than all things, this Jesus the Christ. And by putting our eyes on Christ, Our life itself becomes unshakable. Our faith is unshakable in spite of what's happening around us. And so all of these major themes and what Christ has come to fulfill come together in this moment to talk about what God, or sorry, who God is, what God has done, and what God will do. Those are three things we want to pay attention to today in these just 11 verses that were just read. Who God says he is, what God has done for us and what he plans to do so that we can have the confidence to have an unshakable faith in the midst of uncertainty and circumstances that we face every single day. So Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18 is our passage. And we're actually gonna pick it up at the very end, that last, last verse, 29 of the chapter, where the author says, verse 29, for... Our God is a consuming fire. Who God is? God has revealed himself to be a consuming fire. What does it mean that he's a consuming fire? Well, if you ever think about fire, it destroys anything you feed it. Here in Colorado, we have wildfires. You ever heard a wildfire come down the mountain? You ever felt the heat off of a large bonfire? It destroys anything that you feed it. Now, this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. It's used several times throughout the prophets and the Psalms to describe who God is. Now, it's it's not right for us to put God in our imagination or in our image as though we fashion him out of our likeness. No, God has the right to be a self-defining, self-revealing God. And he reveals to his people that he is a consuming, devouring fire. Now, what is he devouring? This is what's really fun. Is that God's devouring everything you long to be devoured. In your heart, do you long for injustice to be devoured in our world? Yeah. Would you long for prejudices to be devoured? Yes. Would you love for things like human trafficking, pedophilia, to be consumed from the planet? Yes! These are the things that a holy God consumes. He devours everything that is evil and wicked and bent. 
That's what holiness is. He's set apart. It means he's ontologically altogether different. He's unique. And his holiness is what devours what is evil and wrong and unjust and everything associated with it. Now, as soon as you say that, that's where the pause comes. Because who's associated with those things? Me and you. And as the biggest sinner in the room, at first it's like, yes, God is a consuming fire and he's going to devour the evil and wickedness and injustice and prejudices and racisms and all these things of the world and gossip and lying and covetousness and slander and the things that I'm involved with as well. How can someone like me ever approach God? And this is where human beings begin then to refashion God and say, well, that, I don't like a God like that. That sounds like a mean God. And let's think about a, of a better God, a more a tolerant God. But no, God is a holy consuming fire. Dr. Tim Mackey, when he's, he's talking about God being a consuming fire, will often reference him as the sun in our galaxy. The sun is not unique in the universe, but it is unique in our galaxy. It's one of a kind. It's set apart. It's, it's a holy object in our galaxy. And the sun itself is raw power, is it not? And the sun, 93 million miles away, brings both light and life to our world. Our life does not exist without the sun. By the, by the sun's power, life happens in this world. But it's so far removed that it's, just put your mind to this, this is incredible. The sun is so far removed and yet I can step out in the sunshine and be warmed by it. And then by the shade of a tree, I can find, find respite and cool from it. It's perfectly positioned as not to consume me. Though if I spend too much time in it, what happens? I get sunburned. But would it be right, if you were talking to someone who got sunburned, and they say, man, the sun Sun's a jerk. I was out there all day and I got burned by it. No, that's not an indictment of the sun. This is who the sun is. It's what it is. Raw power that brings both light and life to our world. It's an indictment of who we are. It's an indictment. It reveals our present condition. That in our present condition as human beings, we cannot approach the sun and live. Nor can we depart from it and live. The sun is a holy object, like God as a holy consuming fire. Now, in the redemptive history, God doesn't want to remain 93 million miles away from his people. That's not how he created this world. He created us to be in fellowship with him, walking with him, living with him, enjoying him, the goodness of all the things that he creates. And so how does a holy God restore relationship with people who are unfit, that aren't in the present condition, to be in his presence? Well, here in Hebrews 12, all of this theology we've been looking at for the last several months comes crashing down as God has moved his plan of redemption along from a mount called Sinai to a mount called Zion. And if you have no idea what Sinai and Zion are, don't worry. Most of the people in this room probably don't either. So let's unpack it. So go back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, and we'll start reading there. 
This is a description of an event that happened at Sinai. Mount Sinai was an episode with the people of Israel as they left Egypt, bondage and slavery. They were freed from there going to the place of promise. And on the way to the place of promise, they stopped at Sinai. This is where they received 10 commandments. This is where they built that golden calf and got all crazy. And here's where a holy God meets his people and gives them the law, this first covenant. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest or a storm and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So this first description is of this episode that he's been going back to in the wilderness wanderings of the Mount Sinai where they received the law. Because if you read this back in Exodus chapter 19, you'll see all of these pieces described just that way. When God's presence came down, when God spoke, people were terrified. It was this mountain, darkness and gloom and a storm and a voice and people were freaking out. And in that first covenant, there was not an invitation to come near. Now, in fact, in this first covenant, it was stay back, draw out the boundary that you may not come and touch this holy mountain. In fact, if anyone touches this mountain, if any animal were to run up the mountain, it would die. For in their present condition, they could not draw near to a holy, consuming God. But that's not the mountain we came to. So that's the description of this first mountain is, is Sinai and all of these descriptors of what Sinai looks like. And so you see it's this mountain in a desolate place, burning, fire, darkness, gloom, storm, terrifying, a voice. If you've ever experienced these things in your life, you know the fear that's probably pounding in their hearts. If you've ever been in Colorado and you, you hear this like thunder roll or you're living with kids, what do they do? They run into your room. Now, are we Okay. When, when the winds blow here in Colorado, they get really, really hard, don't they? It's like, are we okay? Is the house going to be okay? Like the windows seem to be cracking. You've ever been in a tornado, a hurricane, or a forest fire? You know what it is to be afraid of these things. And that's not even God. That's just like, that's just the nature that God has created. And then he goes on to say, but that's not the mountain you came to. That's not where we're at. Remember, God came and he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And through the work of Jesus Christ, he's brought us to a better place where we meet with God. So picking it up in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. Zion is a name for Jerusalem. It's what David gave it. And so Zion is a, is a, is a prophecy, a longing that God would build a city, the city of God that would come out of Zion. And Zion was the place in which Solomon built the temple. And so Zion, later on in prophets, becomes associated with the city of God, the worship or the presence of God, and the people of God. This is where they assemble. And so the Zion is the redemptive city of God's people. So you have come to the redemptive city of God's people, Zion, and to the city of the living God. This is what all those Old Testament saints were longing for, was longing for a day in which Zion would come. Back in chapter 11, 
Remember we were talking about these Old Testament saints, these great women and men of faith who by faith lived their life and trusted God. They were looking forward to, this is verse 10, for he was looking, that's Abraham, looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was looking forward to this day, this day that Christ brought. And so it's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So it's not a desolate mountain. No, it's this living, vibrant community of people living and dwelling with God. And then look at these descriptions of this city. And to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. Now, when you read that, you don't think, that's awesome, right away. Because when you heard the word festal, I know what you thought of. You thought Renaissance fair. And you were just picturing all these people dressed up in like Renaissance clothes, someone with a turkey leg and a stein, and like funny music being played. That's not what this word means. This, this word literally means like ruckus party, ruckus gathering, like a wedding feast where people are celebrating with food and drink and music and excitement. And so you have the heavenly hosts in this ruckus party in the city of God celebrating who God is and what God has done. And you're being invited into it, for it says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The assembly of the firstborn, what does that mean? Well, in Israel, all of the family's inheritance went to the firstborn. And the rest of the, the, the children didn't really get inheritance. Maybe they got something, but the, really the, the primary inheritance went to the firstborn of a family. Jesus is the firstborn amongst the dead and calls us his co-heirs. Sons and daughters of the firstborn. So whoever's in Christ is like a firstborn. There's a big community in a city partying and they're all part of the inheritance. They're all called this assembly of the firstborn that you share in the inheritance of Christ. This is a better place to be going, isn't it? Than Mount Sinai. And then he goes on to say, not only that, that they're firstborn in this scenario, but their names are enrolled in heaven. That there's like a list, attendance of who will be at this party. And he says, consider this is great. Your name, if you're in Christ, is on this list. Now, at first you're like, man, I don't know if that's that great. Think of it this way. When Jesus sent out the disciples and gave them authority to go out in the name of the kingdom, they experienced the power to actually cast out evil, demonic forces. And they come back to Jesus like, Jesus is crazy. The power of the kingdom of God has come on people and they're like kicking out evil left and right. And Jesus is like, oh, that's nothing. If you want to boast in something, if you want to get really excited about something, get excited about this. Your name is written in heaven. You belong to the kingdom of the beloved son, which is a city that's partying in this inheritance of the firstborn and your name is in it as though the inheritance was just for you as the firstborn. Then he goes on. And to God, the judge of all. You're like, oh man, the judge of all. Party killer. <laughs> no, no, no. This is a great thing. Because God judges rightly. And the God who judges all, does how does he judge you in this city? As vindicated. 
with no condemnation of your sin. He judges rightly of you because you belong to his son to say, forgiven. And there's the judge. If ever you just feel like, I don't know if I belong here, are the things I've done in my life, the things I've participated, the things I looked at, the places I went, I don't know. And he says, I'm the judge and you belong here. I judge and you're my daughter. I'm the judge and you're my son. Your name is written here. Don't you ever forget it. I'm the judge and I judge rightly, vindicated. So it's a wonderful thing that he is here. So he's the judge of all, calling those of his children right with him. And then it says, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What is that? Well, it's the thing they were looking forward to. The saints of old, Abraham and Sarah, Moses, David. Do you know how they were all saved? By faith. Looking forward to God's provision of grace. Looking forward to Christ. At the end of chapter 11, it says this. After all of these saints were listed, at the very end of chapter 11, second part of 40, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That we're together in this. This is just a beautiful picture of the historic, global, cosmic church that you're associated with the same community that's partying, whose names are written in heaven, with Moses and David and Sarah and Deborah and Ruth. This is one family. God's family is the most diverse family you could ever imagine, and you belong to it. Everyone, past and future, who will be made perfect are made perfect in Christ. And so that's the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This whole global cosmic church of those that Jesus has saved. And then there's the centerpiece, verse 24. And to Jesus, the one who did all this, he's the mediator, the one who brings this new covenant between God, a holy God, and unholy people. It was through the work of Jesus that he brought reconciliation between us. He's the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is that? Jesus poured out his life and his blood. Now, Cain killed Abel and spilt his blood. That was brotherly rivalry. Remember this in the Old Testament? And when Abel's blood was spilt, what does Abel's blood cry out for? Justice. Righteous vengeance. For he was murdered innocently. And he's crying out, God, do something against my brother, against the murderers of this world, against the evil and the wickedness. Jesus Christ's blood was also spilt out. But what does it cry out? Forgiveness. And so Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's. Abel's cried out for justice. Jesus's proclaims forgiveness. Anyone who belongs to Jesus is reminded that they are forgiven. That's the word of Christ's blood that was spilt out. On the night he was betrayed, he took the cup from the table. So this is the new covenant established in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. That's the better word. And so there's this contrast between two mountains Sinai and Zion. And just look at this. Here's the list. Okay, just put them back together. So back to Mount Zion. It's this desolate mountain, blazing fire, darkness, gloom, storm, terrifying. And all you get is a voice. 
And then there's Zion, which Christ has accomplished at Calvary. And there's a city of the living God, a community of people in celebration. It's an internal inheritance. There's God, the vindicating judge. There's a community of believers, Jesus, and forgiveness for all time. Tom Wright, I think, contrasts these things perfectly. This is the point. He says, at the center of the contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, in fact, is the contrast between a holiness which is terrifying and unapproachable and a holiness which is welcoming, cleansing, and healing. See, you ever have this conversation with someone that says, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. Just, I'll take the God of the New Testament. You ever have a conversation like that? You ever felt like that in your own life when you're reading the Old Testament? It's like, I don't even know what to do with that God. I'll just take Jesus, thank you. But the book of Hebrews has told us he's the same. Same, hasn't changed. Yesterday, today, or forever. So if God's a holy, consuming fire that they met on Sinai, and he's a holy, consuming fire on Zion, and he doesn't change, what changed? Us. He changed us. That's the point that he's making, is in our present condition, we can't draw near. And so the grace of God is that he would come and through the work and death and resurrection of Christ, he would transform a people to a new condition, a state of holiness, that they would be made right. The spiritual word for this is justified. Just if I'd never sinned, I'm cleansed. And then sanctified, that I'm washed completely. There's no shame or guilt. He gives me a new heart. We've looked at these themes and then he presents us holy and perfect like his son, Jesus. So the holy consuming fire of God doesn't change. He changes us. And the reality is every single person in the world will have to stand before God. But we get to choose, do you want to meet him on Sinai or Zion? And I think we'd all say, I want to be on Zion, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the love of God, which truly says, come near, draw near, get in here. You're with the family and we're partying. We're celebrating. We're excited. You belong here. Your name is written here. And we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, are you really that good? You're that good to have done this for me. Wow. Thank you. Thank you that you would do this. And then he goes on to give the final warning in the book of Hebrews. If you've been tracking with this whole time, there are these punctuated warnings after these great revelations of what God has done. And then there's this fifth warning, starting in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Back in chapter two, he began to say, this is the great message, don't neglect it. And then in chapter three, this is the great word, don't harden your heart against it. And then in six, he's saying, okay, this is what Jesus has done in the new covenant. Don't retreat back to old traditions of the old covenant. 
thinking you'll be saved there. No, he's done something altogether new. Move forward and cling to Jesus. Don't retreat back and trust in tradition. And then in chapter 10, he just says, hey, don't, don't stop persevering. Don't give up on God as though he's slow to fulfill his promises. And then here in chapter 12, just do not refuse him. Don't refuse him. He loves you. His kindness is to lead us to repentance. So just respond to the goodness of God, what he's done, what he, how he loves you, how he looks at you and adores you and says, come, come here. Come here. I know what you've done. I know what you've seen. I know where you've been. I will forgive all of that and change your present condition so that you can be with me now and forever. And it begins now. Have you noticed that there's a present tense to this? You have not come, but you have come to Mount Zion. I mean, this begins now. In some sense, there's this beautiful mystery that what we're doing in this room today is participating in the reality of heaven. You get that? Like what happens in this room as we lift our voices and worship and come to the Lord's table in a moment is participating with the festal gatherings of the historical church. We're doing this together today. And so do not refuse him who is speaking. So who God is consuming fire. What he has done, he's changed our condition so that we can be with him. And then this is what he's going to do. This gives us the confidence to navigate the world in front of us. What he's going to do, verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. And this is a quote from the prophet Haggai, chapter 2. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yes, once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, we, thus let us offer to God acceptable worship and reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. What's God going to do? It's like that great hymn from Taylor Swift. Shake it off. <laughs> this is going to be this cosmic shakedown of all the evil and the wickedness in the world. He's just going to remove it. How good is that? That's what we crave. Is that what you want? And he'll remove everything associated with it. That's me. Unless you come to him. And he'll transform your condition to be righteous and pure and holy and perfect without spot or wrinkle in the likeness of his son. That's what God's going to do. Now, in our minds, we think, okay, there's this heavenly Jerusalem I don't know, I'm kind of new to this Christianity thing. That's weird. And like Christians always talk about getting to heaven. I, I, just don't, I just don't get this. It's actually better than some ethereal destination that we're going to. See, God's kingdom, this heavenly city, is both heaven and earth. It's the restoration of all things. And so when you get to the end of the story in Revelation chapter 21, check this out. Revelation 21 speaks of the heavenly Jerusalem coming to earth. Revelation 21 is talking about this great shakeout when he removes all evil and wickedness from the world and brings the newness of life. 21, then I saw, John says, a new heaven, a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. And what's it doing? 
It's coming down. See that? It's coming down. See, our ultimate destination is not to go somewhere. It's for God to come and restore all things. And so it's coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. That sounds like a party. Sounds like we're going to a party. Adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, which is what God wants to be with us and for us to be with him. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now here's a question. Does the Bible say that going from this present state to the heavenly Jerusalem of the restoration of all things is a smooth, peaceful transition of power. No. So what God's going to do is going to bring tumultuous times in which Christians will be persecuted and face suffering and hardship. And you too might be susceptible to being shaken unless you know already who God is what he has done and what he's going to do. So when we see the world being shaken and it feels like it's all falling apart, we go, actually, it kind of feels like it's all coming together. And my faith and my confidence in who God is, what he has done and what he will do is sure. You see this? This is why the author of Hebrews is going after the people saying, I know you're experiencing hardship and suffering and it feels like the world is quaking. God's at work. And ultimately, he's going to devour and consume it all. So the only thing that remains is the goodness, the holiness, the wonderful kingdom that's unshakable. And you, if you're in Christ, belong to it. That's the good news. So what's our response? Well, at the very end of chapter 12, it opens up to 13. We worship. God gets your worship on, man. When I hear these things and see these things, I just want to worship. I just want to praise him. And, and yes, that is music. And yes, it's the Lord's table. But it's also our whole life. And so when we turn to this final chapter in 13 next week, it's how the worship of God invades every realm of our life because we worship with reverence and awe of gratitude. I can't believe, God, you are this good and you called me yours. That's a life of worship. Now we're going to take communion now, which is to remember the work and death and resurrection of Christ. The blood that speaks a better word than Abel. So if you are helping to serve communion, would you come forward or take your spot? I know over the last year we have been using these uh, individual servings for a couple of reasons we're not doing that today. Uh, one, no one can get a hold of them because they're back ordered. Um, <laughs> it's all on a shipping container off of Long Beach. Um, but there's something that we miss in not being served communion, I think. And so we have prepared the, the safest, simplest way to do this. We're not gonna pass it as we have in the years past, but we're gonna ask you to come forward and it will be served to you. 
And so we want to administer to you the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to take a moment to just sit and reflect. And when you're ready, would you go to one of the stations? There's four stations here in the front. There's four in the back of the room behind you, if you look behind you. And then there's three up in the balcony. And there's some things on the screen that just help our minds think about the goodness and the work of Jesus Christ. But as you take the communion, as it's served to you, this is the body that, God gave, that Jesus gave to us. It was supposed to be our body on the cross. This is the blood of Christ. It was supposed to be our blood spilt. But it wasn't. It was his. And so when you eat and drink, do this in remembrance of him. A blood that speaks a better word than Abel's. That as you take it, tell yourself, forgiven, forgiven, name in heaven, belong to God, vindicated to the eternal, unshakable kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's go to the table now.